This summer bonus episode of the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Click for Vic. You can buy online now direct from chefs, artisans, makers and creators across Melbourne and Victoria. Click for Vic and get the best of Victoria delivered at visitvictoria.com forward slash click for Vic. everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is a summer episode and we are talking of all things sport and food, Caro. Two topics very close to our hearts. How are you, Kaz? I'm great, Corrie. I've got a lot of lists today. I've made some lists because we've got two eminent guests in to talk. Well, one well, one knows all about both. I don't know if our other guest knows about food, but he certainly knows about sport. So I've done my top five, favourite five sport books at the moment and favourite five sport movies. We are going to chat with our dear friend, friend of the pod, Jeff Slattery. Great to have you back again, Jeff. Well, it's lovely to be here, Corey. I see we're just filling in so you can tap, you know, you can have a week off during the summer break. Jeff Slattery is a publisher. He is a former sports editor of The Age and The Old Herald in its old format. He is a former restaurateur. He is the author of a couple of cookbooks. He is actually a man about town. There's not, there's not a lot that you have not done, Slats. And he is a... a and I was not going to say award-winning, but you you breed greyhounds which have won group one races. Group one races. Yeah. So what does that make you? Uh, a group one owning greyhound <laughs> <laughs> breed. <laughs> dish, a dish liquor expert, and we also have with us one of my favourite friends. He has been on the book pod before with us, Mike Clayton. Uh, where do I begin? Golf course designer, professional golfer. <laughs> That's it. Men- That's mentor, mentor to Jeff and myself when we're trying to. Now we work need to out. play too. And the only yeah, thing I know do. about the three food of us... is what Slattery taught me. I know nothing about food except what he drills into me every week at the golf club. When when we go past this lemon tree on the seventeenth at Metropolitan, Mike always says, "Well, what do you do with lemons?" Oh, you and then don't. we just keep walking down the fairway and I say this and this and this and this <laughs> and this and that and this and this and this. In fact. Anything is better with a lemon. Yeah. It's so true. I thought you were a bit of a cook. Is that why yeah, you haven't I had us around in... for dinner? Well, I sort of am. Well, not really. I just well, I cook at home. My wife never cooks. But the only thing I know is I don't know much about food because I listen to him all the time. I realise I know nothing. So one of... which, which is actually the key to most things is knowing what you're not understanding what you don't know. So you have the honour of being the only person to whom I extended an invitation and came for dinner between the two lockdowns. When we had that little brief moment in July, in June, yeah. July, you and Deb came around for dinner at our place. We had a lovely time. Mm. Mike Sheehan was there. And that was my only social occasion for about nine months. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was it. it. We've got lots of things we want to talk about. And um, we, well, this is open to both of you, of course, but Mike in particular, when you were on the book pod a couple of years ago with Charlie Happel yep. and both of you had written Preferred Lies, which remains one of my favourite golf books. <laughs> I love it. And it still sells. Did it get out more? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. It's such a great book. But um, we, we had a lovely discussion that time on different books. Mm. Uh, you're a huge reader and I know that for a fact because during lockdown I was delivering books to your house. Uh, which actually is not far from the St Andrews um, fourth, Beach golf fourth, fourth hole, sixth hole. Well, it's, well, it's just down the road from the driveway, really. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, it's um, so, close. So we were delivering books to you, and I just wondered if um, there were any particular sporting books this year or in recent times that's really floated your boat. Well, um, 
Tom Callahan, who's my favourite writer. Tom's a you, you know Tom Callahan, right? Slats? No, he's one of America's greatest sports writers. Correct? Uh, I, I hear you. Huggy thinks I he is. You. My friend John Huggin, who's the Scottish golf writing journalist, thinks Callahan's the one of the great sports writers. So he he wrote a book called Gods at Play, which is tribute to the great American. Is that the sportsman. one you said I should yeah. buy a few copies of? Yeah, it's really yeah, it fantastic. In, in Australia, you, you, you bought it in, so hold yeah, it up. Here it is. Well, here it is. Here, Gods hold it up at Play. The microphone. Oh, I've, no, I've seen this. Is this, is this one that um, an my husband right. should read over yeah. the summer on the beach? Borrow, t- take it and borrow it. And- Carol, I'm trying to get some into the shop. No, she can buy it from no, me. No, she'll buy it from Curry's she's not gonna, She's not going to borrow it. Come yeah. on. Well, yeah. But, um, oh, and it's got your name in it, so you know I'll return yeah. it, which is good. <laughs> no, I hate people who don't return yeah. Oh, you're going, you're going to buy one from me. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, thank Callahan's kind of... Happy hope. Christmas, Brendan. <laughs> one of America's great sports writers, and uh, he wrote that. Book on Johnny Unitas. Unitas. What was his? What was his? I should know that. Michael, one um, of my problems is that I edit so much bad manuscripts yeah. that I don't have time to read good writing anymore. Yeah. Well, you should read Callahan's Except stuff. Except your is. columns on golf.org.au. <laughs> Do you? So, we, we shouldn't mention that as well as being a, a professional golfer, Michael is clearly the best person in the country writing about golf. Um, here, here. And, and What's anything this? that he does has got depth and thought and perspective and history and relevance. So if uh, nothing else comes of this, some of your podcasters might go to golf.org.au and follow Michael's commentary on golf. Did you pay him to say that, Mike? No, you are a beautiful golf writer. Well, well, there aren't any. And I just copied Peter Thompson, which is one of – we were talking about great sports books, which I – one on my list was – My brother's book that he did with Your brother's book, which he did with Jeff, which is – And Peter Thompson. I mean, Peter was by far the best Australian – writer, golf writer ever. I just, it, I just kind of read what he did from when I was a little kid and kind of tried to copy what he did. But um, Jeff's and Steve's book on Thompson is brilliant. A Life in Golf. Yeah. And here's the funny story. We tried to get it distributed in the UK where five-time, five-time Tomo, uh, the Open champion. And this imbecile sent a note back, um, it's too Australian. <laughs> I don't think we'll distribute it in the UK. Oh, my God. And yet there are so many references to the British Open. Absolutely. It's and, incredible. And, and, and for people who want to write, it's just a beautiful book of simple sentences and great paragraphs linked together without any, um, you know, overt me or anything like that. It's just a beautiful description of the game and how it's played. And yeah. Brendan, my golf-loving husband, who you know well, absolutely loved that book. And I'm proud to, very proud to say that I think the last interview – Peter ever did, Brendan conducted at the Sorrento Golf Club a few mm. years ago and um, he refer- he referenced the book so many times and it was one of the most riveting nights. I mean, it was just fascinating to hear Peter Thompson talk and he, you know, obviously he, he lived for a few more years but I think he was starting to get a bit older and um, Brendan was eternally grateful for um, a lot of the things he learnt. Yeah, when we launched the book originally, Kerry O'Brien interviewed him for 7.30 report down at the Victoria Golf Club and it was a tremendous interview and he, he also had a melodious voice which was just perfect for his commentary was, on television, yeah. wasn't it? It was great and he, was, he did so many things that gave events credibility just by turning up. If Peter Thompson up, it was important. And he would go to Serena Golf Club where he would talk to the state team or the pennant team or just he would turn up to stuff and wow, Peter Thompson's here. I mean, you can't imagine Jack Nicholson, Peter, Tom Watson, or 
Tomo was such a he was contributor a great give, to give giver back. Yeah, he just turned up mm. and did yeah, things for. Yeah. So did your did your father give him the gig as the golf yeah, writer yeah, for the that, age? Yeah, and they were they were good buddies. Yeah, he did nothing to improve Dad's game, I might add. But um, uh, Dad believed that um, within sporting people there could be great writers, and they didn't have to be ghosted, which is what the Sun News Pictorial was doing a lot with Lou Richards and so on. Let's get these big names, but let's just ghost them. So you lose a bit of the authenticity. And I think, in fact, dare I say, my brother followed in his footsteps a bit by nurturing you with your golf column too. Well, he did Mike. that exactly with me. He said, "Can you just just we were at the golf. It was a Royal Melbourne in 1990." The end of night, I can't remember. I can't remember if it was the end of nineteen ninety or the start. But anyway, he just said, "Can you write a column?" And then Brendan Maloney came up and said, I'll, "I'll help you write it." And Steve said, "No, no, you have to write it yourself. I'm not interested in any of that ghost-written rubbish." Mm, yeah. Well, that and followed, I, and, on, I, and it was yeah, that followed on from. So I was sports editor of the Sunday Age. Steve followed me, mm. and we had Dermot Brereton writing for the Sunday Age. And the, the deal was, you write it, and we'll fix it. Yeah, and he's carried that through to you. In fact, here's a strange thing in my head of which is not much at the moment. One of the first things you did was, you know, tips and tricks on the golf course. And what uh, amateurs like us do is you don't face the hole when you hit the ball. <laughs> you're facing the wrong way or you're off an angle or whatever, you know. Um, mind you, Michael's not very good at giving tips on the golf course. Oh, no. I've enjoyed I've, I've, no. I've had a couple of holes with Mike before. I found him very instructive. In fact, you and I were – the three of us were going to play with my son, Will – when um, lockdown got in the way yeah, too. We we'll have to revisit yeah, that idea. So what other books do you um, – are there any others that you reckon that people should really be reading this summer? Well, golf books this summer? No, not necessarily. In uh, fact, Jeff, you've published sports? a couple of good ones. Your Crimo book on Peter Crimmins is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, Dan Eddy is uh, so meticulous in his research. It's it, it's almost difficult to edit. You know, I said before about bad manuscripts. He sends good manuscripts that are almost impossible to cut which which means that the books are sometimes 500 pages, which some people say, oh, well, that's too much for a, for a biography of a person who died in 1976. But this book talks about the social history of the time, how it all evolved at Hawthorne, the coaches that he had, the John Kennedy era, Don Scott, all those sort of things. Um, so it, a book like that, a biography like that, provides more than just the story of the person, but the story of the time. Mm. Um, particularly... Um, particularly what I found really evocative was the story of the doctor. Oh, goodness. I mean that uh, that um, and and the diagnosis. Yeah, and the feeling the Crimmins family probably to this day still have. Not probably. Uh, yeah, Gwen just just can't get over it, you know. Um, and in, interestingly, Mike Sheen read it, and we we're in contact all the way through his reading, and he, he got to the chapter where the you know the the, the last bit about. Terry, what, uh, Terry Gay. Yep. Um, Terry wasn't the doctor at the time. It was uh, Sandy Ferguson? Sorry, Sandy, Sandy Ferguson. Ferguson. You better feel, Terry, you better fill potties in on the little backstory here of Peter Crimmins, who died of cancer. Great Hawthorne yeah, champion of the game. Testicular cancer, which was diagnosed in 1975. He made a comeback. He made an attempt to play in the grand final. Um, the the selection committee of which John Kennedy was basically the the linchpin of the the group decided he shouldn't play, um, and he made uh, in 1976 he he gradually um, got sicker and sicker and he died two or three days after the 76 grand final and the famous photograph of like Clive McKinnon yep. um, at their house with the cup yeah. Um, 
it's a very sad story, but... Um, but the misdiagnosis... It's just terrible. Yep. Yeah. So Mick Sheehan says, I can't understand why nobody's picked this up, you know, from the book and, and written that story about what happened and why, because it wouldn't happen these days. It no. It wouldn't happen. No, it, it, and, and people say that, and I'm sure it happened a lot more often, but it was such a high-profile mm. situation, and Sandy Ferguson was such a loved Hawthorne person himself. I mean, oh, it's appalling. Yeah, terrible. And he, you... his first seven games in 75, I think, um, he played with a strap around his, uh, his groin area, um, keeping it all together, and played with it in incredible pain and suffering and whatever, and... Um, yeah. Would, would that be the highlight of the sports books that you've published in the last couple of years, do you reckon? Oh, look, it's up there. But, I mean, what Conrad Marshall's done with uh, Caro's footy team, what's it called? Um, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, a lot of years in the wilderness. You can make all the jokes you like. <laughs> I don't care. But I'm, actually, he's, he's written a, a masterpiece called yes, The Hard Way. Which I'm about to receive. I'm very excited about that. Oh, good. And uh, in it, he talks about the, the fact that the... The Tigers turned, you know, well, we're all sympathetic to the Tigers and now we just can't get enough of not of them. Yep. And But you know what? Great, if, but you great know to what? be if hated you, again, if you, if you ask her nicely, Mike, she might do her Tiger Raw for you. She apparently does it when she goes to bed oh, at night. Oh, please, Corrie. Because <laughs> when on. I was a kid, they were like, they were guns, weren't they? Late 60s, they were like... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's not talk about no, Richard anymore. And, and by the mid-70s, they were hated. I Carol, just do you mention... have any books that you'd like to <clears throat> mention? Well, well, look, there's just a couple. There's, I'll, I'll do a few, but obviously <clears throat> The Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Sarong, a novel, is just a, a fabulous book about corruption in sport and a family story. A brief mention of the Hawthorne Football Club in that book too, actually, but I would, oh. I'd really recommend The Rules of Backyard Cricket. One of my favourite sport novels is a first-time novel by an American writer called Chad Harback. Yes. Called yes. The Art of Fielding. Yeah, it's fabulous. Which is a, a great book about mm. a shortstop at a fictional American college. Mm. Great novel. Um, I really, I'm, I'm not a golfer, but I did love A Good Walk Spoiled. Is it John Feinstein? Yeah. Um, he's yeah. who I knew and covered, used to cover Wimbledon with. Great bloke. Huggy calls that a good book spoiled. Oh, well, I enjoyed <laughs> it. I enjoyed no, it's it. good. Um, there are so many great golf books. It's amazing how over the years how many. Well, that one, that one that um, we've had in the shop this, all this year, which is sold like hotcakes. You got Lo- Brendan Lofted. one for his birthday. Oh, that yeah, one, loved yeah. it. He loved that. Which is a pictorial, yeah, book, a pictorial bodies. book. It's yeah. a pictorial book of a ramble through, I mm. guess, some of the world's great golf courses yeah. and why particular holes yeah, work good. so well. It's good. As Kurt Sampson's a great American writer. Years ago, he wrote, years ago, 10 years ago, a book called The Eternal Summer, which is one of golf's best books. It was a story of the summer of 1960, which was largely probably the best US Open where Nicholas was an amateur, 20-year-old amateur, Palmer won. He was the best player in the game. And Hogan was fading but still good. And they kind of collided in Cherry Hills in 1960. And it's the story of that summer, which includes Kel Nagel beating Palmer a month later at the British Open at St Andrews. So there's a lot of drama there. The whole story of that. Yeah, sounds great. That's a great golf book. The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown, which is the story of the American rowing team at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. One of the great underdog, great novel. Great, it's not well, it's sort of a novel, but it's it's true. It's a true story, yeah. And and Paul Kennedy, who's the ABC sports presenter, wrote a brilliant book uh, a year or two ago called Fifteen Young Men, which is a true story of the Mornington Football Club and their real oh, fate. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So they 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 got the boat to Morty to play Morty Alec. I think the game it was a great game, ended in a draw, and there was a squall in Port Phillip Bay. We're in the late eighteen in eighteen nineties, eighteen ninety two, I think it was. Mm. And he compares it to Manchester United because four. 
14 of the team on this boat, plus a 13-year-old son of one of the players, all drowned. And it is... It's a terrible story. It's a terrible story. It's a great book. It's an amazing book. And and Gold by Chris Cleave, who wrote Everyone Brave is Forgiven, which is a story about the Olympics and two athletes. is a Cyclist is Mm. a great one as well. I would just like to mention Jared Waitley's uh, book on black caviar, which I think is such an outstanding book about the horse racing industry. But this particular, you know, when marketing came to a pony that could run Mm. and the two, you know, all the stars aligned. And then also a book that I have in my um, bookshelf at home when I'm writing a column or something like that. It's amazing how often I go to this book for just that spark of inf- inspiration. Les Carline's collection of 40 years of writing about the turf, True Grit. So if anybody loves ponies, that those would be my two, I would suggest. Um, so what about sport films, guys? What can we be watching? What do you recommend we watch over summer? Well, I'll, well, I'll give you my my. I, I mentioned Follow the Sun with Glenn Ford. I always, that film always stayed with me, as did National Velvet. I couldn't as a stand child. Glenn Ford. I always found him so wooden. He's really he's good as Ben Hogan because so it, it shows the life of the young sort of golfer and. Um, you ever seen it? That's Follow no. the Sun. No. Very, I don't know, mid fifties probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed um, the Natural with Robert Redford. My probably my all time favourite Aussie one is the Club, uh, where I mean that is just a great rendition of a great mm. play. And Jack Thompson as the coach. Graham John, Kennedy is the president. <laughs> John, John Howard is the um, the star recruit who's got some serious issues. My favourite baseball one is Bull Durham with Kevin Costner. I know that he got a bit you know mm. annoying later on, but my brother's favourite film. Ever, well, I don't know whether it's changed. No, field, of field of Dreams, Build oh. and They Will Come. Yeah. So yeah. He's lo- he loves. Wasn't Kevin so wasn't so mad on that. Chariots of Fire. Oh it, yeah, it's love an it. oldie bit of goodie. Eighty one. Yep. But, but then Corey, my, and and obviously, if do you count Gallipoli as a sport film? Not really. What? Well, it no. opens with a running race. No, anyway, no, no, no. anyway, Farlap was a really good film too. Farlap was really it, good. It did fiddle a bit with the truth, but it did tell the story. And it was it was beautifully shot and beautifully acted. By the way, you missed a couple of the stars in the club. Scott Palmer and Ron Carter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not now, Scotty. Not now, Scotty. I remember it was 1980 and Richmond were playing Collingwood in the grand final and I was very concerned that the momentum might get oh, Collingwood over the line. Um, but, Corrie, for TV shows, there was a great British series called The Manageress starring Sherry Lungi as a manager of an English soccer team. It was on in the 1980s. It was a great show. I don't think I've ever seen that. The Four Minute Mile was another fantastic one, as was Bodyline, which was around the same time. I think Hugo Weaving. Played he Douglas was. Jardine. Jardine, he did. It a series rather than a yeah, it was yeah, the same series. Yeah. Right, okay. Barracuda, I thought was a really a really good one, and um, the English Game, which is more recent, it's on at the moment on Foxtel, I think, or well, Netflix you've, about you've, the origins of rugby. Got the worst you've, review I've ever read of a. I know you bagged on it. the Guardian. And and it was wrong. It was really good. And a film I forgot to mention, Corrie, should have won awards, never did, um, Rush with Chris Hemsworth playing James, the racing car driver, British. Um, James Hunt. James, James Hunt. Hunt. That was, a, that was yeah. And I remember bailing him up at the footy. He was there for the Bulldogs. She has a massive crush on in him. In 2016. I used the fact that he was robbed for not getting an yeah. award to go over and completely bombard him at his table and tell him how much I love the film. And, um, and love him. I think the head of Channel <coughs> 7, over, you've, overlooked, you've overlooked one of the great golfing um, movies there, Carol. Caddyshack, 1980. Oh, yeah, Chevy my Chase. husband's favourite. <laughs> oh, it's a good film. Good film. It put, me off, it put me off joining a golf club for years. Brawler. I was traumatised. Do you have any – sorry, I've monopolised no, there. Um, but... 
I always loved when we were kings. Did you ever see that? Yeah, that, yeah. that's a great one. Which relates that's a doco, to yep. which relates to Callahan's God's implant. Callahan knew Ali quite well, pretty well, in fact, very well. And he he was at that fight with Frazier, right? No, no, the big guy, Foreman, Joe George Foreman, Foreman. George yeah. Foreman. Yeah. He was at the fight, and he picked in Sports Illustrated Foreman to win in one round. End of the first round, he said, wrong again. <laughs> so, so there was Plimpton and Norman Mailer in the documentary. They were yes. the kind of – but Callahan was sitting with them. And Callahan goes into the locker room or the, wherever they go after the fight and Ali kind of calls him over. And he said, what you don't understand is black men scare white men a lot more than black men scare black men. <laughs> and Callahan's told me that story a hundred – it's a great story, but – what a noise! You don't me. understand. You know, it was such it's a great a, line. Such a such a brutal sport has invited the best sports writing, the best filmmaking. Mm. I mean, so many. Obviously, Raging Bull is an absolute classic of a film mm. as well. It, it's and I mean, not that Rocky had its ups and downs, but you know, it was a great premise. And Which it, one, Rocky Ten or Rocky Fifteen? Oh, well, or? The first couple of Rockies were really good, <laughs> yeah. were really good, and I think Rocky Three was pretty good too. But and yet, you know, maybe it was the one sport I was always banned from covering. But I just. I just don't like it. There is a really good sports film that all family members can watch over summer from grannies down to babies, and that is Crackerjack, the 2002 oh, the Australian. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just one of the funniest, <laughs> best films. Mick Malloy, right? Yeah, Mick Malloy. Yeah. So Mick Malloy ends up joining the local bowling club for a variety of reasons. Judith Lucy is sort of his sidekick. John Clark is in it. Frank, okay, Wil- Frank right. Wilson, I mean, we forgot that he was an actor before he had um, the Sunday night um, talent show. Uh, and Bill Hunter, I think it might have been Bill Hunter's last role from memory. But there, it's just such a great, isn't that it? Was really good. I love yeah, Cracker Jack. Really Highly recommend. You, you mentioned John Clark. The games was uh, one of oh, the, one of the great satires to, of our time, wasn't it? It so true. was. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> and they hope and, nobody had noticed and, for the Olympics. And Ross Stevenson hasn't done anything since, as far as I can know. I, I, you know, no. I, I wanted him to do his memoirs at one stage and, oh, God, what a talent that man is. But that last scene, was it the Seekers at the back of the van singing the carnival is Can't over? <laughs> <laughs> funniest, one of the funniest half hours was, was after the 1998 President's Cup where Greg Turner had played. And Greg was a friend of John Clark's. I knew him a bit, but Greg was a good friend of him. New Zealander. Lovely. Yeah, New Zealander, yeah. And the cricketer's brother, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah, Glenn Turner's brother. That's right. So sorry. three brothers. Brian, who played hockey for New Zealand, so all three brothers played sport. They represented. They were cricket, golf, and and hockey. But we were at the casino after the tournament, and John, we just sat down on the side in some bench somewhere, and John Clark just commented on people for half. It was just so funny. So his observations were incredible. <laughs> how quick he was, and how clever, and how just. It was just. It was a. We just sat. We just sat there and I just listened. It was amazing. And he was not up himself at all, no, was, was he? Brilliant. For, it was for no. someone so, so talented, he it was, was so funny. Yeah, that's a that is, that is a real gone too soon. Real there was loss. a top ten of talent. He'd be right up there. Yeah, I agree Podium with that. Finish. Hey, um, yeah. we'll move on to food now. I just wonder before we talk about our best recipe or best cookbooks or whatever we're going to talk about. Slats, do you reckon that Melbourne can reclaim its title as the food capital of Australia after these two terrible lockdowns? I noticed on your um, rundown that that was a topic. Well, the assumption there is that it has been Australia's. Ah, food yes, capital. of course it is the assumption. And that's a self um, given uh, title by Melburnians. So that's what, true. why do we say that's the case? Because everybody says it. Sydney people. But not so much anymore, though. Sydney people come to Melbourne 
to go to restaurants. Uh, They they plot out their week to go to five brilliant Melbourne restaurants. They do. What are the five, Cara? Oh, I mean, Let, let's go anyway. Let's go on, back. So, let's go back so, to the original. Are you question. begging? You don't think Melbourne has great restaurants? I, you know, it doesn't sit with me that it's constantly considered one of the world's great restaurant places. I well, mean, we're, we're saying in Australia, just no, but it's often called the, you know one of the great places in the world. Let me go back one step. I'd rather go to Florence. I, well, I think it is. John, you know, John Carroll, sociology professor at the Trade University, friend of mine, golfer, he said there are only two man-made things of any architectural significance in Australia, in the world, Royal Melbourne and the Opera House. So in terms of the restaurant analogy, do we have anything remotely close to Royal Melbourne? In terms of, given that Royal Melbourne might be the best course in the world, but it's definitely one of the best five courses in the world. So people who don't play golf in Melbourne have no comprehension of how significant that place is in terms of how great it is. In, term, in terms, in world terms. So in restaurant terms, think, do we have we, anything that's I close have, to Royal Melbourne? Hands up, hands up for the MCG. No, no, no. Well, I had that discussion with Max Walker. I'm now name dropping. Okay. But a massive argument. I've been to a lot of stadiums around the world. But but of architectural significance, the MCG? Not of any architectural significance. I have an an uncomfortable relationship with Royal Melbourne, I have to say. No, that's not the point. No, that's not the point. But but as a piece of man made architecture, it's one of the best in the world. Incredible. So, can you answer Mike's question there about restaurant analogy? There's nowhere in Melbourne I would queue for. Really? But I'd queue for Royal Melbourne. In fact, a long, long time ago, um, a, a mate and I had started a golf club and we snuck onto the first tee at Royal Melbourne <laughs> and tried to get a game there and the bloke said, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, we thought we might be able to play, you know. <laughs> so we disappeared. And the funny thing was that the first six times I played Royal Melbourne, this is when I was at the Australian in the 70s, we were in pro-ams. And so I played the composite course six times. Yeah which probably very few people other than professionals would have ever done that that number of times on the So you podcast. must have been quite confused the first time you played as a guest. Uh, no, no, you see, it, it is, as Michael says, a masterpiece. Um, but we won't get on one of his favourite topics, is that it's now been um, cut down by technology and the, and the oh, yeah. quality well, of the ball. Can we get back yeah. to food for one minute? I've actually not been to Attica, but people say it's really, really good. And I haven't been to that fabulous place on the surf coast. What's it called? You know, in Belbray. Bray. Bel- Bray. Bray. People. Oh, Bray. And, and in terms of, I'm not comparing it to Royal Melbourne mm. or the Opera House, but I think Point Leoa Estate is one of the most mm. beautiful places to eat and it's really reasonably priced. And the Sculpture Garden, as you are looking over Western Port Bay, is one of the more beautiful places to wander around. And it's not a man-made Work, yeah. but it is somewhere that makes me proud to be a Victorian. But, but do you remember back in the day, though? You know, in the seventies and eighties, we had those we had those restaurants that really created, you know, set set a, set a standard. You know, Herman Schneider at Two Faces. We had the Staleys doing their thing with Fannies and Glow and that's Glows. Attica. But no, they, but, no, but there weren't. Uh, there was nothing else like it in Australia. These fine dining, Ian Hewitson, everything yeah, he flurry, touched. Yeah, yeah, was. Yeah. They were just. They were. They were Australian class, and people came from Sydney saying we have never eaten like this before. And so, so Melbourne developed this this culture. We had, and we had the Tuesday section. Epicure started in the Age, and the whole thing evolved. And it's just felt so. Uh, I felt so sad for apart from the obvious fallout to the industry and people who work in it. But what's it done to our kind of food um, and, and restaurant and dining out 
I'd uh, still queue to eat those PR. beetle leaf thingies at Coda. I reckon that's a fantastic place. The beetle leaf thingies. Oh, you know, is that the, in lowercase like all the, the menus are these days? <laughs> there, that's that's just one great little city. So, place. getting back to the Go, original question, can we can where are we at now? Okay, let's presume that let's let's accept your thesis. The best places will return to being the best places, but what will happen is that the places that probably shouldn't have been there in the first instance won't survive because they can't. Restaurants run on on weekly cash flow, and there's been no weekly cash flow for how many weeks? Six months for a lot of places. Um, So, you know, the very good places will be back and, 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 and okay. Places like Cutler & Co and Dostasio and um, what's it? I'm trying to think. They've reinvented themselves too. I mean, you go to Marion now and the whole of that street in Fitzroy is seats and tables and, you you know, they turn... Gertrude Street? Yeah, Gertrude Street. They turn themselves into a bakery and a takeaway joint and a wine shop. And, I mean, it's been pretty impressive the way the industry has... I'm of the old school that um, when Paul Lynch had Lynch's and his famous dish was corned beef and mashed potato, that would do me any day of the week. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Tell me about your your favourite. Here's the Dostasio line. No foam, no skid marks. (laughs) That's his line, (laughs) which I agree with. Simplicity and food done well and consistently. But code is simple, beautiful food. I mean, I'm just, I don't know why, but I'm just thinking about that. There are so many places. Tell me about your five Favourite cookbooks or some of your favourite cookbooks? Yeah, okay. Um, your absolute go-tos. Well, there's a common ground among these because they all are about applying basic knowledge which will allow the reader and the user to extrapolate into just about anything. So my number one is the Time Life Good Cook series, which is produced, I think, in 1980 and edited by Richard Olney, who's a polymath genius. There's 28 in the, in the set, and they cover everything to do with cooking. And in each case, there's a, there's a multi-photographed how to do anything, let's say custard. And then at the back of the book, there's 10 or 12 recipes that you can appropriate from that knowledge. So... If you have no more cookbooks in the world, go to an op shop and buy the 28 volumes, which you'll get probably for 100 bucks generally. In fact, I bought some from a son a few years ago in, um, uh, at Cow's. I got the whole set for about $75. Because people just, wow. They're just incredible. And you don't need any more cookbooks. So, so it starts with method and then points you up the back. Correct. Yeah. And the method has got... So a bit like Stephanie does with her, Stephanie Alexander, she, does, she looks at your ingredient and talks about that and its seasonal value and all of that for two or three pages, and then she has half a dozen recipes. Yeah, but the thing about this is that they're pictorial, so you've got 12 photos of each method, so you can't miss. It was so far ahead of its time, it's beyond belief, really. So that's number one. Number two, which is a a text version of the same thing, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, with Simone Beck, Louisette Boutol and Julia Child. Um, oh, yeah, my kids gave me that for Christmas a few years ago after we saw that film. It's a, that's a great cookbook. Unbeatable. It's, it's like, it's re- but you read it, yeah, don't you? Read. you? Yeah, you read lesson. it. It's yeah, a lesson. Yeah. Again, it was ahead of its time, you know. It, it combined narrative with method. Um, along the same line, Jane Grigson's trio, fruit, vegetables, English food. In fact, I, I don't know this for sure, but it seemed to me that Stephanie Alexander took a lot of what Jane Grigson had done and applied it to her Stephanie's uh, cookbook. Um, brilliant. Again, narrative, method, beautiful. 
Chez Panisse cookbook, Alice Waters is uh, the genius of American exchange of food from being, you know, moderate to being fabulous. Have you read the new book by her daughter? The no, I haven't, one? Yeah, no. oh, well, there's a present fact, for you. That, that must be, uh, I don't know how old she'd be, but I remember at least uh, Alice did a, a, a kids' book with her daughter yeah. oh, 20 I, years ago. I, maybe. Yeah, I think, she's, I think she's in her early 30s, but after resisting, I haven't read it yet, but the premise is, you know, after resisting for years, the, you know, what the mother does. I'm not interested in food and cooking. She's now, of course, taken it up. Went to Chez Panisse in about 1991. Um, incredibly brilliant, simple, great flavours. And one of the dishes I remember there, which is, I can still taste, perfect shortbread pastry, perfect pastry cream, lightened with um, whipped cream, topped with strawberry, uh, raspberries on top, with a bit of uh, a gun, of sugar gun on top. Like, unbelievable. That sort of food is better than anything to do with skid marks or foam. We're on the west coast of America for people who don't know. Berkeley, is it in Berkeley? Berkeley in California, yep. yeah. And number five, Marcello Hazan's The Essentials of Classic Italian Love Cook. that too. I actually agree with most of Oh, this. my God. It's the first time for 40 years, Cara. <laughs> Mike, do you have a cook, forever cookbook? No. Right. No, okay. I don't. I just want to but, give but, us... But I, but I would love to just get me one of those. Not Any one of those <laughs> five and I'll read it and it'll be fun. So, but, my... Again, the analogy with golf is you were talking about that dish that you ate. How many people would eat that and understand how great it was? My analogy would be how many people who play at Royal Melbourne who have no clue why it's great. They just know it's great because people yeah. tell them it's great, but they don't understand why. Yeah. So I could eat that and not I would have no clue why. I would. Well, this is really nice, but I wouldn't know why it was good. You wouldn't know the connection between the three or four elements in it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have a clue. No. Which I assume is most people. Yeah. Yes, no, but it's a bit like me who knows nothing really about art, but I love going to art galleries and you just know what you like. Yeah. I mean, I would eat it and go, that tastes fantastic. But don't you think we all know when we're in the presence of greatness? So even though I might know, not know the perfect short crust pastry or um, the, the absolute balance of flavours there to get it right, and I'm such a hack golfer, I still am perplexed by Royal Melbourne, even though, as you say, everybody tells me it's great. But you know when you're in the presence of greatness. Well, kind of. But if Sats had to write a 500-word essay on why that dish was great, he could articulate it perfectly. And I'm picking on Royal Melbourne just because it's the best course, but... If you ask the average member to write a 500-word essay on the strategic greatness of Royal Melbourne and why it's a great golf course, they wouldn't know where to start. You are talking about... They kind of know it's great because they've been told it's great and it's reputation and they can see it, but they they couldn't articulate it or explain why it's great. So maybe this is getting back to the idea of Melbournians being told for all of my lifetime anyway that we are the restaurant capital of Australia. I'll I'll give you an analogy that's close to Michael's. Went to St Peter's in Rome in about 1980 and traipsed behind a architectural group from the university, American University in Rome talking about Benini's genius. So if you go there and just walk around and think, oh, this is big and, oh, the Pieta's lovely and all that sort of stuff. But the fine detail of what mm. Benini did... Oh, the around perspective. The, the, oh, My the analogy perspective. about you comparing sport to anything is when you write more than 500 words on comparing running a marathon to childbirth. And I was <laughs> pregnant at the time and I thought it was a really good piece until I actually had a baby. Oh, and I remember God. giving you the biggest spray. It showed so little understanding of the pain, the agony, etc. Anyway, just well, hang on. And why is a man writing that book? Uh, well, no, it was a uh, it was a that column. piece. That piece. Oh, you, had you run a marathon, or were you? Why did you do that? Hang on, I just want to read something for you. Where do you begin to describe Jeff Slattery in his constant, occasionally frenzied search for perfection? 
a former sports editor whose greatest joy after deadline was to munch happily on a clove of garlic. <laughs> Caroline Wilson, 1991. Was that the forward to your yeah. book? That was, I read that again a few years ago. I was happy with that. So can, I, can I just say on your book, uh, I mean, if we're talking about cook, did. cookbooks that we regularly he turn ate garlic. to. The recipe, the recipe that I uh, probably I, I visit more frequently than any other recipe is your uh, pear and quince crumble, which I do in different variations from your simple flavors yeah. Yeah. cookbook. Which can we still get that anywhere? Uh, well, it's on. I'll put it on. It's online. online. It's online. It's Simpleflavors.com.au. Okay, there you go. Yeah, Look for yeah. the pear and quince Baba crumble. recipe is great too. I but the thing that. about that is that it's easy to do. You've got people coming for dinner, what can I do to make something great and simple? Okay, you poach fruit and you put some self-raising flour and cold butter and sugar together and, and a crumble with your hands, put it on the top of the thing, disappear from the kitchen. Bring it out, let it bubble, cool down, serve with ice cream or whipped cream. Absolute perfection, unbeatable at any dinner party. And can be done without any stress to anybody. Oh God, is the pastry going to uh, curl back from the edges of the tart? Or on the left, the leftovers are fantastic. Use it, use it four days so, later. So thanks for um, answering my text on Saturday when I was having a bit of a meltdown about um, somebody having eaten all the eggs. Somebody called my husband. <laughs> that, I, that I thought were there for my cake for my very special lunch, and time was, you know ticking by and guests were coming and I only had one egg, Carol, and the recipe required two. So I text slats. Why didn't you I need me? more moisture. I had eggs in my fridge. Oh, well, I, I was, the was, answer I was, was My answer was I reckon it'll be okay. Yeah, well, so what I – it was about the moisture content, you see, with the flowers and stuff. So because there was grated lemon rind or zest in the cake, I thought, well, I'll just do some lemon – I'll squeeze a bit of lemon in it. The thing, it was absolutely perfect. It was that lovely pear and ricotta cake that you oh, that's made. been a great. Yeah. So you're sitting here looking interested, but I'm never going to try any of these things, Mike. We're we're talking in January, and most people are putting their feet yeah. up. What? How do you put your feet up? What do you do when you're not playing golf or writing? <laughs> I mean, or... What have you done for the last hundred days in lockdown, Mike? <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to be staying at St Andrews Beach, where we've got a beach house. I played golf on the beach every day. Oh. Which is really kind of boring, but I got to play golfer. Um, well, I don't know what I do. I... Is it legal to hit balls along well, I the think beach? It was. Well, people were surfing on the beach and walking on the beach. But what you was... could hit did someone you hit on the head. Did you hit them into the water, or did you hit them no, just along a... the beach? Oh, but you could so, hit so when someone. You go I down, saw your photo on Instagram, you go, and I thought you're going to kill someone. If you here. go to St Andrews Beach and go left, of course the ball's below your feet because you're going that way, so you're hitting fades on the way down. <laughs> and then when you come back, the ball's above your feet, so you're drawing it on the way back. But in the end, I just, take, I just took my practice bag down and tipped 80 balls out and hit them. And it was funny. One guy who had no clue who I was, which is not very relevant. But Don't he, you know who I am? <laughs> but, but he said, we'll have to call you Sevy, which was like, there's a guy, there's a guy on the beach, at, on the back beach at Sandra's Beach with his girlfriend just sitting down just watching the waves. Who knew who Sevi Balasteros was? Someone who famously nice said Sevi. Who famously well, learned but... to play golf on the beach. You must, have been, hitting them. Oh, you must have been hitting course. them well if he gave you such a compliment, Mike. Oh, you yeah. haven't lost your touch. Yeah, yeah. I've called you savvy. Um, like, well, it's funny. We had a bloke in our local oval who um, hit golf balls too. I mean, that was a great frustration for people, wasn't it? It was a lot of angry golfers. Well, and I was right to ban them because they can't be trusted. From, you know, the apocryphal <laughs> yeah. stories I've heard of golfers drinking bottles of wine in the car parks and not wearing masks and doing lots of things that were against the rules because they're golfers and perpetuating the myth that golfers are all fat, arrogant white blokes. Well, they actually didn't abide the rules when they were 
allowed to play but not allowed to do anything else. Yeah, I found you know. that I found <laughs> a, the the most angry of my friends at the height of the lockdown were entitled golfers. Well, you see, you look at the demographic of a private golf club, Caro, and most of the members would be over the age of 55 or 60, the most vulnerable in terms of mm. COVID-19. So it just made sense. But it was a bit of a bummer because I had two or three really good rounds in February, March. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're a, uh, I was thinking, I this, is my, this is my purple patch. I could have been Jan Stevenson by <laughs> yeah. right now. I could have been. Do you, do you think, Jeff, it's a, in terms of... PR or optics. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump playing golf while Ryan Byrne is just a classic sort of. But in terms of, do you think it's right? It, we're sitting here in January. Should Daniel Andrews be allowed to go and have a game of golf now at his golf club? Of course he should. Yeah, I reckon of he, he should. should. Someone said to me the other day, as he dared to show his face there, is he oh, Huntingdale or Kingston Heath? Kingston Where'd Heath. Kingston, Kingston Heath, Heath. yeah. Um, I think he showed enormous restraint by, you know, allowing people not to play golf or, or requiring people not to play golf. He, he's almost as obsessed about golf as Michael is. He, um, he loves the game, doesn't he, with a passion? Mm, he does. Well, in fact, we played on Sunday, eight holes in the rain, but he <laughs> loves golf, yeah. Oh, he, okay, yeah. so he has played golf. He well, played. good. It was his first game in whatever. Months. He wore a balaclava and a, <laughs> and a dark hat. <laughs> during, lock, during lockdown, I think Mike might have been the special advisor on the golfing situation no, with the is, Premier. No, no. But, but I think it's... You know, Just it's, quietly. In, in fact, one of the... You've probably read Commander in Cheat. Yes, yeah. that was another book Rick, I had written Rick down. Rick Rowley's book on Trump, Great which was all stories that I'd heard of all before. But the last chapter was really good. But he made the it's point horrifying. That, but he made the point that Trump's a terrible image for golf. It just perpetuates his image that and that's what golf is. It's, you know, being entitled fat guys who don't play by the rules and that's golf. And it was the worst image for golf ever you could have portrayed. Do you, him, do you wonder whether those members at the Scottish golf course that Trump bought? Turnbury. Uh, Turnbury. Which well, makes no me members, so sad. Oh, okay. I, I was there But do you the think year. the committee is thinking, what the hell did we do? Well, it's a public course. He owns it. I was there the yeah. year that Greg Norman won. Yeah. And um, Tommy Remember Nicodrema? me playing there? Yeah, you were playing. I was there. You were there. Tied for 48th. I, I probably remember Greg a bit more. <laughs> yeah, of that. yeah, Greg played pretty well that week. And and me and – that's where I met your friend, our friend, darling, Mickey Gordon, and we, we traipsed around with him in the third round. It was that shocking was day. Well, the, yeah, the weather was And he was sort horrific. of really won it that day, didn't he? Well, the, well he did because I played early when the – Greg got the worst draw. I played late the first day. By 9 o'clock when I was finishing, all the weather had gone. Greg played in the worst weather on Thursday – and he played in the worst weather on Saturday. Yep. And I remember walking around with Michael Gordon and him saying to me, God, you, you know, you've really – we were both congratulating ourselves on braving the storm. But um, that was such a beautiful place. I've, I can't remember yeah. anything. And Robert the Bruce and all the yeah. stories. And to think that Donald Trump owns it now, I just cannot believe that someone allowed that to happen. Um, I'm – I'm aware of the time, and I just wanted to give a book that you brought in, Jeff, one of yours that you've published in the last month or so, Sustainable and Fashionable Melbourne, which is a guide to all the great designers and artisans who are working uh, in the in the uh, clothing industry, um, but doing amazing work to just... Um, Jeff, you've done a... He's done a fashion book. Who would have thought? I didn't know that. It is a oh, really it's good guide. It's just a part of me that you're now learning. It's would not you like all, to give it? It's not like all to... about this stuff. It's not all about the forward from 91. <laughs> I think that's our show title, Miss Jane. Um, give us a quick two-minute plug because we're running well, late. At the end, I edited this book, and at the end of the edit process, I thought, I just love these people and what they're doing with their, um, with their philosophy of, of finding discarded um, garments and, and jewellery pieces and the like and turning into something new. It's just tremendous. And at the end of the book, I asked the author or the compiler, 
Greta Lukovic to do a piece called What I Have Learned. And, and some of these are really fascinating. And buy well and buy responsibly. Not only were the pieces last, they were matter to you. We live in a diverse world in which no two people are built the same. Instead of reproaching yourself for not fitting into a standardised size, try supporting a local maker with the skill set to celebrate your unique proportions. And there's four or five other points in there. And, and they just encapsulate what's in the book. These people, and, and when we launch it and they've done stuff on Instagram, it just shows that there's a community of these people who love each other and support each other and, and want each other to be creative. And, and, it, and it's by circumstance, it's a book that's right for the time of buying local and supporting local. Well, so and right. Supporting and, people who and it, and, it just, and it fits in with everything from David Attenborough through, and his new book and his new doco on Netflix right through about landfill and all the muck and rubbish. And I must say to you, Jeff, and please tell Greta, um, you know, we're, we're hand selling it in the shop with me saying that when I read this book and looked through it, I suddenly just had such an aversion to going to places with mass market clothing and I won't name the labels. Mm. Yeah. It really does start the change in your own thinking about what you're doing with the clothes that you wear. And I think we also learned in lockdown, Caro, as well, we don't need as many clothes. No. Just a good leisure suit will get you through. Not well. <laughs> or pyjamas in the shop, uh, Corny. Oh, yeah, thanks for that, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks, no, thanks I've, I've, certainly, I've certainly had a rethink in that area yeah. and shed a lot of things. Um, what a wonderful discussion. We'll have to do it again sometime, yeah. guys. Um, Mike, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. All the best. And we need to play. We need to get down there in January and play golf. We'll go well, to Portsea I'm not, and play. Yeah, I'm not going to the beach. I was just about no, to say good Portsea. luck on the journey. We need to play Portsea. the I would really like that. Great underrated. What's I'll, the, what's the restaurant to... equivalent of Portsea in Melbourne? <laughs> I'll, I'll have uh, to get fit. Vastly underappreciated and brilliant. Uh, good question. Mm. Um can I put that on the notice paper? Yeah. And I, I hope you and Charlie are getting the band back together for another book of Preferred no, Lies, number probably, two, because yeah, it's, should, it's yeah. such Bikesh. a great book. Bikesh, brilliant restaurant. Bikesh is, yeah, I sold it to Michael in, in 2001. Absolutely the best seafood cook and provider of fresh product right through the menu in town. And that is one place I would queue at. Yeah, that I, was I'm with in Domain Road, right? Domain Road, yeah, yeah Bikesh. What did you seafood. call it? What was yours called? Uh, Slattery's, Slattery's something. Yeah, Slattery's um, Bistro? What Slattery's? Bar and Bistro, yeah. yeah. It was great. It was, it was great. It was really and, good. And, yeah. yeah, it was a beautiful place. And, and Bakash is just stunning. Yeah. You know yeah. it's going to be great. Jeff, um, any tips? Just don't forget with the dish liquors, send me a text, won't you, over the summer? Yeah, yeah. well, the, 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 the great hope for me is a dog called Harrison House. And the reason why oh. it's called Harrison House. Oh, okay. This will be good. Oh, this will be good. To, is that up to George Harrison of Carlton? Oh, no, that's please. George Harris. No, it was oh, the former AFL headquarters. Yeah, oh, yeah, 31 of Spring Street, of which course. is where I live. And we lived there for three or four years before I woke up that that was where Harrison House was between 1930 and 1980. And it's an absolute disgrace that names like that disappear from the yep. history and culture of the game. AFL House, who cares? You know. Harrison was the father of football and the place was named after him in 1930. We knocked the joint down, go to Jollymont, and he's disappeared forever. Oh, yeah, they should call. Well, they should when they <laughs> That's when what they happened to Slattery's new, Restaurant. Yeah, that's right. When they redo Docklands, they should call it Harrison House. Well, something Let's like that. Let's start the campaign. Um, yeah, exactly. Jeff, all the best with all the books that you're producing uh, and your golf handicap and the dish liquor Harrison House. We'll all be putting money on it. And, Caro, thanks so much. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger.
Thanks for listening to this summer bonus episode of the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast, proudly supported by Click for Vic. You can buy online now direct from chefs, artisans, makers and creators across Melbourne and Victoria. Click for Vic and get the best of Victoria delivered at visitvictoria.com forward slash click for Vic or just follow the links in our show notes. And let us know about your great Victorian recommendations and discoveries and Click for Vic suggestions. Email feedback at don't shoot pod.com.au